Tonight, the subject, as Rabbi Virchhoff indicated, is theological in nature, and it has to do with Judaism and Christianity. The subject is a very big subject and requires, first of all, and I say this by way of introduction, an approach which eschews apologetics and stereotypes. That is to say, we shouldn't apologize, as we use that term in theological discourse for Judaism unnecessarily, and we shouldn't make a caricature of Christianity on the other hand, because then you don't understand either Judaism or Christianity, and you certainly don't understand their interchange in the history. One has to deal with the subject honesty and without any sort of special agenda, and I hope we can do that this evening. The subject also uh, requires uh, sophisticated knowledge of a certain number of terms. I'll try to explain them if I have to as I go through. Please, if I use terms, and I say this especially to the young people who I'm happy to see here that you're not familiar with, just put up your hand and I'll get the idea that I need to explain something a little more fully uh, to you. The third thing I want to say is this will not be a lecture about Jesus in the normal sense of that term. Often uh, conversations about Judaism and Christianity turn on a conversation of what was Jesus about, what did Jesus mean, and how was he interpreted. And often uh, Jewish advocates of that conversation transform Jesus into something like a reform rabbi by anticipation. And I think that's a fundamental error, that uh, Jesus was not a reform rabbi by anticipation. Now, the other thing that I want to say by way of introduction is this. Usually when one talks about Judaism and Christianity, one starts right away by talking about messianism. Because everybody knows that the f seemingly obvious difference that separates Judaism and Christianity is the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and more, and Christians affirm that and Jews deny that, and really that's the end of the conversation. That's not terribly interesting, not terribly informative, though it's certainly not untrue. What I try to do tonight is to explain to you why the two traditions came to the different views they did of Jesus and the nature of Messianism. Messianism is the end of a conversation about Judaism and Christianity, not at the beginning. To really understand the conversation, the dialogue between the two traditions, why the two traditions are what they are, you have to understand that in their structure, in their very form, the way they're organized, they are very different. It's not just that they're similar and at the very end they come to a different conclusion. They come to a different conclusion because they're very different in their fundamental structures. To understand what their fundamental structures are, you have to look at theology a little bit. And I start with two basic ideas uh, to begin with after I talk about a still more basic idea, which is the human condition. Religion, after all, is not so much about God as it is about men and women. Religion is about who we are and what our obligations are and what our destiny is and what our place in the cosmic order is. And if you really want to penetrate the meaning of the different religions of the world, the place to start is to ask, what do the religions think the human condition is? What do they think men and women are capable of? And the answer will surprise you a little bit that the different religious traditions give very different analyses of that basic question. So let us take, to begin with, the Jewish and Christian view of who we are, what human beings are. The Jewish view has two characteristics. The first, and I was struck sitting here by the phrase, of course, Dalaf Nehmiato made, know before who you stand. 
And that is the fundamental principle, which is that we are created. And that as creations, there is a fundamental sense in which we are subjects of God. That when God says to the Jewish people, for example, in Yitzhak Mitzrayim, in the Exodus, I will make you free, let my people go. Remember the famous phrase that became so popular with the Soviet Jewry movement, let my people go. That was only half of the biblical phrase. V'yavduni is the second half. Let my people go, v'yavduni, so they can serve me. We are servants of God. That's the fundamental assumption, that God is the creator, to whom by nature of his being and our finitude, our natures being created, we owe a certain obedience, a certain allegiance, a certain veneration, respect. Christianity shares that assumption that human beings are creatures of a God who loves them, who brings them into being. But then Jews do something very important. Judaism does something very important. It says that though we are creatures, we are essentially majestic creatures. Majestic. That's a word I want to concentrate on for a moment. We have majesty. Remember in the Bible when it describes us, it says, but Selim Elohim, we are like God, in the image of God. Now what does it mean, but Selim Elohim, in the image of God? Does it mean that God has a body like we have a body? Does it mean that God has physical forms called anthropomorphisms? Does it mean that he has our emotions, anthropopathic qualities? No, it says quite clearly according to the tradition, when it tells us we are like God, it means that we are free like God. God is free and we are free. God has reason and we have reason. God can do good things and we can do good things. And the evidence that we are like God is given to us at the very beginning of the biblical story where God tells humankind, I created the world, but I didn't complete it. Remember, he doesn't complete it. He tells Adam that he should name the things of the world. He should name them. Now, you have to remember that in classical traditions, Naming is a powerful thing. You'll know it better, perhaps the young people in the audience know better from voodoo. You know in voodoo you take a doll and you put the name of somebody on it that you don't like and you stick a pin in it. And then you think that it harms the person you don't like. Names are a power to control the name. That's why in traditions, most primitive traditions, people have secret names you're not supposed to tell anyone because if they know your name they can control you. When Adam is able to name the things, it means he has destiny's control. He has the fate of the universe in his hands. He controls the future of the world. God, in a sense, has taken a timeshare at the Marriott in Orange County and left it to us to run the universe. We are people who, in God's plan, have enormous majesty, enormous power. Now, the consequence of that is, of course, we can misuse that power. We can be evil. And the very fact of being evil is a sign of our majesty. Namely, we misuse the freedom that God gives us. And of course, when we misuse our freedom, as becomes the case in the story of Gan Eden and the Garden of Eden, it has consequences also. It's not just our good actions, but our evil actions. But in any case, we are majestic. We're powerful. We're enormously significant in the cosmic order. As a result of that, the tradition holds that human beings can do something that God finds worthy. I want to stress that again. Can do things that God finds worthy. There is in rabbinic literature a concept that is not much discussed in subsequent times, in our times, but it's really a basic concept. Namely, that human beings can acquire merit. The Hebrew term is chut. 
that human beings can acquire zchut, merit. And in fact, the sages felt this was such a fundamental idea that human beings have the ability to create merit. They thought that the whole universe ran on a law of cause and effect having to do with human merit. In other words, if God wants there to be a world in which we're creative, we're powerful, we're majestic, then he has to respect the fact that our actions have consequences. Those consequences can be good or evil. If they're good, they're called merit. Now, what does merit mean? It means we do things that God finds worthy. According to the rabbis, merit is one of the things created early in the space of the creation. And merit is one of the things that runs the universe. So, for example, nothing good or bad happens without it. The rabbis ask, why did the Jewish people get redeemed from Egypt? And the answer was the merit of the mothers because they continued to have Jewish children. They gave their children Jewish names. They didn't become acculturated, assimilated. They even ask, how is it that Rome becomes a great world power? And they give an answer. There was merit for Esau. What is Esau's merit? He loved his mother, Rivka. Interesting. Everything has to have merit, has to have a reason. The world is not random. It's not without purpose. Now, the reason I stress this is the rabbis felt that merit was the decisive factor in the operation of the universe. It was what made men and women who they were. Because human beings have merit, the rest of the Jewish tradition starts to make a little sense. By that, I mean the following. God makes a covenant with Abraham and reconfirms it with, a with Isaac and Jacob and then with the nation at Sinai after the Exodus. And he makes this covenant on the assumption that he can have a real partner in Israel. Jews can be really partners with God. The covenant, the partnership with heaven means that we make a contribution to the agreement, that God makes a contribution to the agreement, and it's in a binding way that is an eternal connection between the God of Israel and the people of Israel. And as a sign of that, he gives them the land of Israel to be the experimental laboratory to work out all of the conditions of the contract that God and Israel makes. And essentially, it's a two-sided contract. God has responsibilities and Israel has responsibilities. And insofar as Israel keeps its responsibilities, there are positive consequences. And insofar as Israel fails to keep its uh, circumstances appropriately, it has negative consequences. The covenant is something that we enter into and we are active in. And that's why we always have to do something to be covenantal partners. The most classic instance of our action, of course, is circumcision. It's the sign of entering the covenant. Something we do, something we're active in. But it's not the only thing. And so God, having a partner with Israel, covenantal partner, can create what we call Judaism. And God's contribution to Judaism is the Torah. He gives us the Torah. Now, why the Torah? The Torah is a kind of blueprint for ideal living. The Torah is the place in which Jews gain merit. God says, keep the Sabbath day. Very simple. You keep the Sabbath day and there is merit. God says, don't eat certain creatures. We don't eat there are certain creatures. That's a meritorious action. All of these actions, which are prescribed in the Torah, are occasions for merit. And the Torah is the structural blueprint by which Jewish life is organized. And the object, of course, is to be a partner with God. 
As the Jews see it, the Torah is the partnership in action, a way of being connected to God. What Jesus said about doing the will of my Father in heaven is what Jews think they're doing every time they keep a commandment, a mitzvah, doing the will of our Father in heaven. If it be Shabbat, it's doing the will of our Father in heaven. If it's Kashrut, it's doing the will of our God, Father in heaven. Remember, the object all the time is obedience, but you have to understand what obedience means. Obedience means trying to put your will into parallelism with God's will. That the fundamental human condition is always one in which the struggle is to assert our will, but assert it properly. When we insert it improperly, we create not dialogue, but tension. We create rebellion. The rabbis called it acts of miradim, acts of rebellion. God says, don't eat the such and such, and we eat it. And of course, you see that in the first sin, which is Adam's sin, right? God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit, and they eat from the fruit. You see it in other places in Genesis. The struggle is always to make our will and the divine will consonant to bring them together. If we bring them together, it's dialogue, it's covenant, it's Torah, it's everything that we could want as partners. If we assert our will improperly, there is also a negative consequence. But let us assume for the moment that this works properly. And the Torah functions as we hope that the Torah will function in Jewish life. And people will have the right kind of relationship to heaven. They will keep the mitzvot. They will sanctify their life. They will organize a holy community. And it will be, of course, a community, not a group of individuals who are collectively destined to try to work out the special paradigm in human history. But let us say, as the Torah is quite clear already, this doesn't go properly. That human beings don't keep the rules. They don't follow the law. They don't keep the Torah. What happens? They, of course, sin. Now, here we touch on a deep matter, ladies and gentlemen, sin. What is sin? Sin is the assertion of your will against God's will. That's what sin is. I could go into a long disquisition because Hebrew is a very rich language for sin. There are many different kinds of sin. But all of them seem to have something of the sense of missing the mark, falling short, or rebelling against. That sin is a condition in which something goes wrong because of our desires. The result is that we fall away, we fall short, we are in error. But I want to stress one aspect of this uh, in particular. Sin is something we do. Sin is something that we do. Adam was a sinner because he did something inappropriate. Eve was a sinner because she did something that was inappropriate. The people of Israel were sinners at the golden calf because they did something that was inappropriate. And you and I do things that are inappropriate and we are sinful. But that is a result of our volition, something we have chosen, something we have directed our will towards. It's not that we are guilty of sin because Adam sinned. And it's not that we are guilty of sin because the people of Israel sinned at the golden calf. 
Each of us are Adam anew, according to the tradition. Each of us have the capacity as Adam and Eve to make the world perfect, at least in our own action. The clear evidence of that is that in rabbinic literature, you actually find lists of people who die without sin. Now, the lists vary a little bit. You have some lists that have, uh, for example, they all have Moses' father, have uh, Elijah, Ezekiel, different lists of who belong in the category of the sinless. But the very fact that the rabbis could produce such lists means that they believed that it was possible to come into the world, live a life of a human sort, and yet die without sin. Death doesn't mean that they were sinners. Now here you see the structure coming into being. Majestic human beings make a partnership with God, get a blueprint for their action through the Torah. If they keep the rules, they get merit. If they don't keep the rules, we get chaos, we get sin. But is sin the end of the story? Of course not. Because God loves you, according to the tradition, because God cares for you, because God wants things to go right, even though he knows in advance they'll go wrong, he creates the possibility of what is called teshuvah. Teshuvah is, I think, uh, perhaps the most wonderful of all doctrines in rabbinic tradition, in Jewish tradition. The term teshuvah comes from the root shuv, to turn. And it's a very simple kind of geographic, spatial image that I would share with you. When men and women are in the right relation with God, they are facing each other. They are in a harmonious interchange facing each other. When we sin, when we assert ourselves, what do we do? We turn our back on God. That's why teshuvah means not atonement, like when we describe the 10 days of uh, atonement in the Seret Yemei Tshuva between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The 10 days of teshuvah mean the 10 days of return, that we have turned the wrong way during the year, and now we want to turn back to the frontal position, to have a conversation directly with God, teshuvah. Tshuvah is, the rabbi said, one of the seven things created before the world. God saw that there would be catastrophe. There's a famous Midrashim about how the angels come to him and say, do you really want to create the world? Do you want to give them the Torah? They're imperfect human beings. They will be sinful. They'll do all kinds of terrible things. And God still insists on creating the world and on giving the Torah and having Israel come to be his partner. But he does it on the assumption there will be mistakes, but he already creates the antidote, which is teshuvah. Built into the very fabric of the universe is the possibility of our returning to God. But here you notice the term I've used, our returning to God. It means that men and women through their volition sin. Men and women through their volition turn their back. Men and women make the wrong choices. But it's the same power that leads us astray can lead us back. We can return by our volition. There's no external source that pressures us except our conscience. And we choose to make teshuvah. And of course, this teshuvah means something very interesting. It means the future and the past are both open. By that I mean teshuvah means not only can we go forward in a different way, but in a sense we can wipe out what we did before. 
There's nothing that is unchangeable, immutable. Even the worst of our actions, in a sense, can be changed by tshuva. And this is what the rabbi's emphasis is, always to emphasize tshuva. The rabbis say you should act as if every moment is a moment before your death. Why? Because before your death, of course, you would want to make tshuva. And it creates an organization of our lives which stress the Shuvah every year. We come to the synagogue for the 10 days of atonement, and we ask that we return and start a new slate, the image of the books being taken out and being recorded. But of course, these books are done in a kind of reversible ink, an impermanent ink. We can wipe them out. We can change what was written in the last year. Now, this is the dialogue that Jews have with heaven, the structure of the dialogue. And of course, it culminates in redemption. Redemption is God's response to our tshuva. Redemption is God's response to our keeping of the mitzvot. Redemption is God's response to our behavior. Think of it like young children. When the child starts to walk, it may not walk very well, but you can't walk for it. But if the child will walk to you, even if it stumbles a little, and you love that child, you will catch it. And you'll take it the rest of the way. That's what God does in redemption. God takes us in our finitude, in our limitation, in all of our weakness. But because we make the effort to the degree that it's possible, he catches up and he brings redemption. So teshuvah and redemption are a dialectical process. Without teshuvah, there is no redemption. Without volition, there is no need for tshuva. So all of these things are the structure of the human condition. Now, in this structure, you see, I have not mentioned the Messiah at all. Not at all. When you go to shul, come to this beautiful shul or any of the other shuls here in Orange County, and you go on Yom Kippur, you will find very little there about messianism. In fact, you will find a phrase from the Gemara that Rabbi Akiva says, Happy are you, O Israel, before whom do you sanctify yourself and ask repentance before the God in heaven? You have the direct line, direct communication, unadulterated access. In the time of the Beis HaMikdash, God gave us his fax number. It was the sacrifices. You make sacrifice, you communicate with heaven. Not because the sacrifice per se is functionally effective, but the sacrifice to be effective means you have made a decision to confess your evil ways, and you bring a sin offering, which means you make a public declaration, I am a sinner, and then you come and ask forgiveness. It's not ex opera operatum. It's not that the action itself is magical. It's the human perspective that accompanies the korban, the sacrifice that makes the sacrifice a real sacrifice. Otherwise, it's just the meaningless slaughter of an animal. There has to be the human participation of asking, of craving forgiveness. But nowhere here have I mentioned the Messiah. Doesn't Judaism believe in the Messiah? Of course Judaism believes in the Messiah. As I said the other night, it's the live wire of Jewish history. It's the central, one of the central aspects of the tradition. But it has nothing to do, nothing to do with the drama of personal salvation. The soteriological drama, soteriology means salvation, the issue of whether God finds us worthy, will take us into the bosom of his care in the world to come, has nothing to do with the Messiah. 
The Messiah in Jewish tradition has a different function. As you can see from what I've just told you, the system as I've described it is perfectly logical and self-contained. It doesn't need a Messiah, at least not for the drama of our own goodness, our own judgment, our own tshuva. The Messiah is necessary because the world is in a mess. The world is in a mess, and the messianic role is as a symbol of God's ultimate redemption of the cosmic order, of perfecting the world, that he brings Israel back from the exile. What does that mean? Israel being in exile is a symptom that the world is in disarray, not just that Israel is out of place. He resurrects the dead. Why? Because death is a sign there's something wrong with existence. He ingathers the exiles because it's a sign that there's something that is catastrophic in human history, that has to be explained and repaired by a God who is supposedly all just, all wise, all caring. So messianism has to do with the cosmic order and God's justice. It's a way of saying that the problem of theodicy is ultimately solved. How can the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Well, God squares the circle and he brings it all to a perfect ending. That's messianism. Now, if there were time, I would go in these directions a little bit more fully, but let me turn now just to the alternative. And again, I hope without stereotype, without apologetics. Christianity also shares the first assumptions about humankind being creatures, but it does something in its very fundamental hermeneutical enterprise, the very fundamental interpretation of scripture. It makes its most decisive decision that affects everything else. It sees the sin of Adam and Eve not only as volitional, of course, that they chose to be sinners, but that the sin of Adam and Eve corrupt all of future history and corrupt all of future humankind. Each of us in ourselves are heirs of Adam and Eve. And as such, we bear an ungetoverable taint in our very nature. The very nature of being born is to be a sinner. Human beings in Christian tradition are not majestic, and I don't say that in any polemical intent. Human beings are by nature sinners. If you have any doubt as to the authority, the authenticity of what I'm saying, just put on Sunday morning Pat Robertson or whatever else you'll get on Christian TV and listen to what they say. The fundamental condition is that we are sinners, born of sinners, going back to Adam and Eve and cannot help but be sinners. To be born is to be a sinner. The human condition is one in which we are all tainted fundamentally by our parentage, by our ancestry. In other words, sin is not something we do, but something we are. The Nevi'im, the prophets always talk about sin as something like the menstruant garment Take a garment that has menstruum blood on it. You can wash it away and make it clean again. That's what we do through tshuva. We make ourselves clean again because it's not our being that's corrupt. The sin is some sort of dirt, pollution on the outside. In Christian tradition, sin is something fundamental, integral, unavoidable on the inside. And because sin is so fundamental, and you all know the term original sin, this is the meaning of original sin. The original sin of Adam and Eve decides all the future of humankind. Because human sin decides the future of humankind, it has to reinterpret the meaning of covenant and Torah. Covenant and Torah don't mean what they mean in Judaism. Signs of majesty, of partnership, of dialogue. They mean rather ways in which 
especially the Torah, God exposes human weakness. By that I mean the Torah gives us all these commandments that according to Christian tradition, it's self-evident. By definition, you might say, people can't keep those laws. What does that mean? That the Torah is God's way of exposing the weakness of human beings. From the first, Adam and Eve's weakness is exposed, not their majesty. Then what do the Jewish people do? They always are weak. And God sends prophets to them. And what do they always do to the prophets that God sends them? Because of their weakness, they kill the prophets. Moshe Rabbeinu is on the top of the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And it's not the beginning of the story. They've seen God's power in the plagues. They've seen the redemption from Egypt. They've crossed the sea. But the people can't hold on to have any faith even for 40 days. And so they celebrate the golden calf. Over and over again, God calls them to be partners and they fail. God gives the Torah with all of its commandments and they fail. Sin, corruption is all exposed through the Torah. And that's why Paul, who's the most famous and most consequential of all Christian theologians, always stresses that the Torah is a way of death, not of life. The regimen of the mitzvot is a regimen of darkness, corruption. He makes a famous and repercussive remark that all of you should grasp if you want to understand this issue, he says, if salvation be by works of the law, then Jesus died in vain. Most important thing he said regarding this issue. If salvation be by works of the law, then Jesus died in vain. If it's possible to keep the law, if it's possible to have merit, if it's possible to be God's partner, if it's possible to do tshuva, if it's possible to come into the presence of God directly, you don't need any intermediary Jesus. But if the Torah exposes your weakness, your sinfulness, your corruption, if the Torah is unkeepable, then you're in trouble, humankind. Then you're deeply in trouble. If what I've just told you is the Christian uh, way, it also means tshuva can't be functional because people who are so degenerate, caught in the mire and muck of human sin, whose very nature is corrupt, can't do tshuva. How could they really turn back to God in a pure way? How could they keep the rules and do the right thing? That's why Paul calls the keeping of the mitzvot by the Pharisees boasting. They think they can do something worthy. They think they can be God's partner. How arrogant. What a chutzpah. Jews are chutzpahdik. And that's a deep theme in Christian theology. Some of you may remember. I look out at the audience. At least one or two of you will remember. You're old enough to remember De Gaulle in 67. 67 war. What did he say of the Jewish people in Israel? They're arrogant. That's a abiding theme in Christian theology. Jews are arrogant. What is their arrogance? They really think they can do things. But you can't. You can't keep the Torah. You can't keep the covenant. You can't do tshuva. Well, if you can't, then you're in a mess. Then human life is one damn thing after another. Then what do you do? Well, then you have to do something else. So it's God has to do something else. You can't do anything. God has to take the lead. God has to come back into the picture, and he does. Why? Because the God of Israel, who is also the God of Christianity, is a loving God. The fundamental premise is that he loves humankind, that he wants to be our partner, 
Indeed, the only reason that there's a creation of the world is that God is lonely and wants friends. But we turn out to be terrible friends. So he goes century after century, decade after decade, millennia go by and things don't get any better. They just get worse. And he keeps calling us back. And he sends all the prophets and we murder them. And so what does he decide? He can't rely on us to do anything because we're hopelessly suck, stuck in our condition. But he loves us. And so what does he do? He sends his only son. God loved the world so that he sent his only son. What does it mean? It meant he said he made a fundamental analysis. He looked at the condition and he said, you know, this can't go on. This is terrible. But I have to do something because I have the power. They're powerless. They're sinners. So I'll change it. So he comes into the world in flesh. The idea of the incarnation means enfleshment in Greek. And what does he do? He suffers on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins. All the korbanos, all the sacrifices that we offer are clearly not sufficient because we have to keep offering them. We come all the time to the temple and we make our offerings. But every year we do it. Every year there's a Yom Kippur. Every year there's a plea for forgiveness. We're imperfect. We can't make perfect redemption, perfect tshuva. But God can. And because God loves us, he comes into the world. He takes the sins of the world on his own shoulders in the form of the incarnation. He suffers for mankind and wipes clean the slate. Opens the gates of heaven. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus is called the new Adam. This is why in the New Testament, the emphasis is on Jesus as the lamb of the sacrifice, the Paschal lamb. It's not an accident that the Passover is Easter. All the generations have made sacrifice, but they have not been efficacious. Now the sacrifice will be efficacious. All the time, the people have hoped for tshuva, but there's been no real tshuva. Now there will be real tshuva because God is perfect. And God loves you so much, he takes the sins on himself. That's why Christian theology does not talk about tshuva. You can read the Pauline epistles, as I say, the most important document, and you'll find the word tshuva almost totally absent. In the other New Testament documents, you'll find it a little bit more. But the decisive word that replaces it in Christian theology is grace. Grace. What does grace mean? Grace means an act that God does for you, though you are undeserving. See, Christianity has its own logic. We have schut, we can do things. Christianity has grace because we cannot do things worthy. Grace means that God loves you and saves you and helps you even though you are unworthy of that love. It's not a law of justice, it's a law of love that the Christian emphasis is on the loving nature of God without human recompense, without it being human recompense. God loves us even though we're inferior, inadequate, sinful. So grace is the way God relates to the universe. And all you have to do is read the New Testament and read, of course, uh, any Christian theologian of the last 2,000 years, and you'll see the dominant word is grace, not tshuva. Grace, God loves you and he acts for you and he saves you. And so what the theological drama of the crucifixion is, is very clear. God comes into the world as if diving into a bowl of muck, refuse, 
And he then draws us out of the muck and refuse to his level, by his efforts. That's the meaning of the Christological drama, the drama of the crucifixion. Jesus takes the sins of the world on himself by entering a world that is imperfect, becoming like us in the flesh, though divine. The result is that the drama you see of tshuva and redemption is replaced by grace and divine action, a different logic. Now, in this drama, of course, the Messiah is reinterpreted. I want to stress, it's not just that the Messiah has come or not come, but the very notion of messianism has been reinterpreted. In Jewish tradition, messianism has to do with the cosmic order, the historical order, the providential conclusion of history. In the Christian Dharma, the notion of Messiah has been radically reinterpreted as the person who makes possible personal salvation. So it's not a simple question, did the Messiah come or not come? The first you ask is, what do you think the Messiah is? Who is the Messiah? What is the role of the Messiah? And the church will say the role of the Messiah is to open the gates of heaven, to be the new Adam, to pay the price for your sin. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the sacrifice par excellence. He's the new Adam. All kinds of associations, far different than in Jewish tradition. Therefore, when you discuss this issue, you must be clear the Christian Messiah is not the Jewish Messiah, whether he's come or not. It's a totally different theological picture, an alternative way of, view, of viewing the world. Now, given that redefinition, the church does a very interesting thing. Having redefined the entire anthropological picture of who human beings are, what they're capable of, how they relate to the Torah, whether they can be God's covenantal partner, they then reinterpret the meaning of messianism to be consistent with all the other redefinitions, and they give you a Messiah who is the theme of, whose essential essence is the theme of personal redemption. Now we can all go to heaven by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and believing in Jesus. Notice, believing in Jesus, not doing, but believing, because our actions don't really matter. And there's a deep problem in Christian theology between Catholics and Protestants and Pelagians and Luther, I won't go into. But the fact is, somehow human action is minimalized, is made less important because we're less important. That's who we are. And then the Christian tradition makes it a bifocal kind of thing. The messianic action is a two-sided action. The first action is personal salvation, which has no place in the Jewish communal tradition at all. Then it also, because of all the deep associations of messianism with the perfection of the universe, it then says, though it had to say this only subsequently, Jesus will return in glory to make true all the other promises. You see in Paul's epistles, he says, and asks the question about Jesus' death, he says, this generation will not pass away before the coming, the return of the Son of Man. That's say there was an enormously strong apocalyptic eschatological belief that Jesus would come back very soon and end the world and prove that he was the Messiah by fulfilling all the things that those obdurate, obstinate, rebellious Jews were waiting for. The ingathering of the exiles, the rebuilding of the temple, of course not the rebuilding, the, Jesus died while there was still a temple. The perfection of the world, the end of Roman rule, the reward of the righteous. 
And so you got the second coming doctrine, of which there is none in Jewish tradition. So you see what happens is you have two, that's why I call this lecture alternative structures. It has to do with a kind of phenomenological form. The very nature of religion is different. Judaism and Christianity are two different religions. They're not just a matter of a different opinion on the Messiah. They're two different religions as different, for example, as Hinduism is from Buddhism or from Judaism is from Buddhism in a sense, though they share the same vocabulary to a large degree and they say have one thing in common. They both share belief that the Hebrew Bible is true and given by God. And they share a second thing. There is only one God. It's the God of Israel. But what all that means is totally changed in Christian tradition. And therefore, you see, the conversation between Judaism and Christianity has to be a sophisticated conversation. It's not a simple conversation of we say A and they say B about the Messiah. It's about deeper differences. Do we get it right when we attribute to human beings capacities of value, of worth, of energy, of merit, of majesty, of schut? Or do the Christians get it right when they say we are mired hopelessly in a condition from which we cannot escape without God's grace? That's the deep level of the conversation between Judaism and Christianity. The messianic issue is really a secondary one. It's a consequence. It's the corollary of all the other doctrines. If you don't understand the other doctrines, then the messianic discussion is moot, is foolish. So I leave you with this fundamental structure. I hope it's been intelligible that when we deal with Jewish and Christian things, we have to move to another level of conversation, respect their analysis of the human condition, but also know our own analysis of the human condition. And then, of course, you have to put your markers down, your chips down, and decide where you place your bet. Take a chance. It's all up to you. It's all a matter of volition. The rabbis were right about that. Thank you very much.